This is Remembering Yugoslavia, the show exploring the memory of a country that no longer exists. I'm your guide, Peter Kochnak. It's been a while since I spoke with ex-Yugoslav diasporans, 37 episodes to be accurate. 88% of Remembering Yugoslavia's listeners are outside the former Yugoslavia. Many of you hail from there, or your parents or grandparents do. And so, as spring is springing here in Zagreb, I thought it would be the right time to bring the Diaspora Voices segment back onto the show. I spoke with a Yugoslav-Australian from Slavonia and a Vlach-American from Eastern Serbia. They both reached out to me on social media to generously share their story. Before we get to those, I want to highlight a different kind of generosity. Thank you Bo, Davor, Hanna, Stefan and Wolfie for your contributions. Like all generous supporters, you now have not only my undying gratitude, but also access to an extended version of this episode, as well as all other extended and bonus episodes, all with early access and without ads, or rather asks. Thank you. Remembering Yugoslavia relies on the individual support of generous listeners like these who put their money where their ears are. If the stories you hear on this podcast resonate with you in some way, if they enrich your life or you learn something from them, be like Bo, Davor, Hanna, Stefan, Wolfie and many others and make a contribution now to support the show. Go to rememberingyugoslavia.com slash donate or follow the link in your podcast listening app. Whether you choose Patreon or PayPal or paid subscription to the podcast, every little bit helps. My name is Daniela Vancic or Daniela Vancic, if I'm introducing myself to somebody who's American. I currently live in Cologne, Germany. I've been here for about five years now, but I grew up in the Detroit area in Michigan. And I was born in uh, eastern Serbia, about as far east as you can go in a city called Negotin. At the last available census, Vlachs constituted about 7% of Negotin's population. So you reached out to me on Instagram first. You said, I'm very much a Yugo nostalgic, born in 1991. Tell me about what inspired you or what made you say that? And of course, how can you be Yugo nostalgic if you've never experienced or don't remember rather, in your case, actual Yugoslavia? I've always felt this Yugo nostalgia um, because I, I feel really drawn towards times of when it was more peace, just more success in the region. And just this general, this feeling of like the brotherhood, right, that we always talk about uh, in Yugoslavia. And I feel that a lot in my generation with other friends uh, that are my age. And that seems to be the case, maybe because right now things aren't the greatest. It's probably uh, not the most also economically affluent region. I think we just yearn for a time that was just better. We had a better also standing in the world diplomatically and so on. And this is why I feel more Yugo nostalgic. And I, I think I, I see it also in the the eyes of the people who did experience it firsthand. So um, my mom, for example, who did grow up in Tito's Yugoslavia, uh, my grandfather from my mom's side, who's still living back in Serbia, and their eyes just light up when they talk about this time. And if you talk about the current state uh, of the region, it's not so positive. Vancic's grandparents had emigrated to the United States in the 1970s. Her father was born there, and he ended up marrying a girl from his parents' village. Vancic's parents moved to the U.S. when she was two years old, and she grew up in the Detroit area. My parents were really involved with the church. So the church played a big role also in building uh, our community there. We had a lot of Yugoslavian friends, so to say. So we don't have in Detroit a huge Serbian community, not like in Chicago, for example. In Detroit, however, we have a huge Macedonian community. So I grew up also with a lot of Macedonian, we say aunts and uncles, right? They're not blood related, but to me, they're aunts and uncles. Also, uh, there's quite a big Romanian community as well. And we're a almost Romanian speaking 
uh, minority from from Serbia too. We speak the language called Vlach. It's similar to to Romanian. So um, we started to build also a community that's also growing uh, from people from our village. There's a couple families that's in the area. If memory serves, you're probably the first guest on the podcast with that uh, ancestry, with that heritage. So for those that don't know, and most of us probably won't, tell us about uh, who the Vlachs are, how many are there in the U.S. or still back in the region, etc.? I think it's so difficult to say how many how many of us there are of Vlach majority language speaking um, people because there there are Vlach people um, in also in Macedonia I've learned also in Greece uh, I've learned so we're a little bit scattered around the Balkans and I'm trying to do a lot more research on this and try to figure this out myself especially in the last year or two I've been a lot more interested in this there's very little research on this but um, we might be one of the first people in the Balkans too Vlach so it's a Vlach is its own language it's almost like a mix between Serbian and Romanian but it's much much closer to Romanian uh, maybe about I would say 75% or so Uh, but there are some words in there that are definitely Serbian. And then some words are completely just the Vlach language. So just uh, in its own language that not a Serbian or, or a Romanian would understand. And what's also interesting is we're, it's only a spoken language as far as I know. So we it's not a language you can write. So this Vlach community is really, really based in the language. It's not a language I can write. I couldn't tell you how to write this language. It's really just a spoken language. You know it through well, speaking with family members mainly and then also through music But if I'm speaking to friends from back in the region, if I'm writing with them, uh, I will write with them in Serbian. But if I immediately pick up the phone or send them a voice message, then I will speak to them in Vlach. Everybody knows also Serbian. Anytime you'd go out in town or get anything done or try to do anything official or with documentation, you'll be speaking Serbian. So Vlach is really like a household language is what I would consider it. A friend now is in the process of translating a book from Serbian to Vlach. I don't know if there's ever been a book written in Vlach before. This might be the first one. Uh, I, I think it's really important to preserve the, the language, of course. There's a few other things that set us a little bit apart, I think, from the rest of the Serbian population. Uh, and that's maybe in the way we celebrate things. Weddings, for example, large, large weddings. I mean, bigger than your typical Balkan or Serbian wedding. Also in the way we do funerals, actually. So it's a lot of things based in these traditions. And just the different customs that we have is, I think, what really sets the Vlach people apart. Vancic is indeed the first person of Vlach ancestry to speak on this podcast. In episode 17, I Design, You Design, I read answers to some questions from Zoran Kardula, a graphic designer based in Skopje, who is from the Vlach, or a Romanian minority in North Macedonia. Aromanian is a synonym for Vlach, a group of Romance language speakers who live south of the Danube in a region spanning southern Albania, northern Greece, north Macedonia, and southwestern Bulgaria. A Romanian, which as you heard Vancic say is similar to Romanian, is the language most Vlach speak. Estimates of the number of Vlachs vary widely, one of the reasons being official or unofficial assimilation campaigns or pressures in the various countries where Vlachs live. It's also unclear where Vlachs come from, other than that they settled in the region before the Slavic, Turkic and Ugric populations. Possibly they're descendants of Roman colonists or even earlier populations, Dacians, who switched languages at some point. In the course of her research, Vancic has met Vlach people from Bulgaria, North Macedonia, Romania, Albania, and of course her native Serbia. One of the other things you told me when you first reached out was that you wrote a master's thesis on the Yugoslav identity, on Yugoslavism and uh, its relationship to the 
persistence and then the dissolution of uh, Yugoslavia, the former socialist Yugoslavia. You know, now, you know, you were obviously researching that part of your identity, that part of your heritage, that part of your history. Now you're looking into the Vlach part of it. It sounds like a lot of your adult life you've spent exploring your identity. So what has that been like? What has that journey been like? I think it's going to be a lifelong journey for me to explore all these different identities. I think you can very much have multiple identities. And I don't mean that in like a split personality sense, even though different parts of my identity definitely uh, dominate in different kind of situations more. Because I just have this, I think, very unique upbringing. I have, first of all, this like very basic Vlach community identity, right? That's very based in the language as well. Uh, and then it's from the area of, of Serbia, right? So this is like my national, I guess, identity you can have. But I feel very strongly American also because English is my mother tongue. So I mean, this is also a very dominant side of my uh, identity. And then the Yugoslavian all plays in too, because I'm very nostalgic for this region that just disintegrated when I was born and when I was growing up. And that's something that's always been super interesting for me. And now I've, the last five, six years, I'm living in Germany and I'm almost fluent in the language too. So I feel also very somehow, maybe not German, but very European. And I'm very connected also to the local culture here in Cologne. Germany is where I live. So for me, this like I, identity topic is something that's always developing in my mind. And some parts are coming out stronger than others. And in different situations, also the way political developments happen, some become stronger than others. Right now, I'm, I'm also a little bit in difficulty navigating my national identity of Serbia at times because I don't agree so much with the current politics there and um, just having also this internal struggle uh, with that. So this is where also, for example, the Yugoslavian identity is going to come much stronger. So if I meet somebody from Croatia, from Bosnia, I'm immediately happy to meet them and tell them in in, uh, in the Serbian and Yugoslav language, like, oh, we can also speak our language because that's something that we can connect on. And uh, I'm sometimes a little bit hesitant immediately if you meet somebody who's Serbian like okay where do they align themselves like orient themselves also politically because uh, I mean I'm also very politically active so these conversations are going to come up and so depending on kind of what is happening in the world where I am at the moment and what is going on different identities are going to be stronger for me than others and I might even struggle with some identities over others. In graduate school, I had a classmate who was from Jordan, and uh, we discussed to great lengths her uh, layerings of identities, being a Jordanian, an Arab, a Muslim, uh, you know, other things. And so, yeah, that's that's always fascinating, uh, navigating that in your daily life and, and kind of switching between these identities. I would imagine that must be difficult. I mean, I experienced some of it here in the U.S. I'm from Slovakia. My mother is Hungarian. My father is of Ruthenian heritage, but Slovak. Um, obviously, I'm from Slovakia, um, former Czechoslovakia, a country that doesn't exist. Now I'm here in the U.S., etc., etc. It always kind of strikes me as, as a constant dance, uh, kind of in a feedback loop of exploration. And what does that actually mean if I say I'm this or I'm from there, you know? But I very much embrace it. I mean, I really have to say, I think I, I struggle with these identities for different reasons, right? I mean, just what's happening in the world and with the different political developments, that's where my struggle comes from. But uh, I've never had like an internal struggle of like, I don't belong somewhere because I'm something else. I mean, I can feel 100% of every single identity. It doesn't have to be that they all have to add up to 100%. I feel at the same time, 100% Serbian as I do 100% American too. So it's for me, these identities don't struggle against e each other. They're, it's just something I embrace. And I think it 
puts me maybe in a more unique position to understand the world and understand different perspectives. Uh, and it's something I wish more people had, to be honest. But I know that I, I'm I'm actually in a lucky position. I just try to embrace that where I can. And I don't use it as something that affects me negatively in any way. What made you move to Germany? This is the part where I struggled with my American identity. <laughs> I decided to move after the 2016 election. I struggled quite a bit after that. For me, it was quite a shock that, I mean, the, the country was headed in this direction. I, I felt for the first time a little bit not so welcome in the U.S., even though I look American, I'm very assimilated in my family as well. I, um, I speak an American accent. So that was for me a little bit this final straw. I was itching a bit to come back to Europe. If I have this opportunity and I have the chance where I've already spent a lot of my years, childhood and adult years, student years in Europe, then yeah, I'm going to try to find career opportunities in Europe. And so that's how I landed in Cologne, Germany. There's a word for this. We're called trump UGs, Trump refugees. Vancic <laughs> yeah. works for Democracy International, an NGO that works to promote direct democracy and citizen participation and decision-making processes across the European Union. She spoke with me on her own behalf. I guess my identity plays a role in this. The, even my, my upbringing and the, even the Yugoslavian identity is, I mean, the European project itself, right? It's like a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multilingual project, an amazing, like coming together of all these countries that to, knowing that together we're going to be much stronger than if we're apart. Uh, and that's a little bit I see like the Yugoslavian dream, right? Which unfortunately didn't work. And I hope Europe learns uh, from that. And vice versa, Vancic hopes Serbia can learn from Europe, particularly from Germany. For me, it's so interesting how Germans approach history and how they approach their difficult history. And this is interesting as a Serbian to observe this, um, because Germans approach it a lot more head on. And there's really like a feeling of of shame um, or like some kind of much more sense of the learning from the past. And there's this really like never again kind of movement in, in the Balkans. I mean, I just, I don't think we've really learned. I think we're still figuring out who is telling the truth or there's really some sort of like distorted understanding of the facts and like everyone has their own version of the truth. So maybe because it's also much more recent history. Yeah. I worry a lot about the direction of how, ex-Yugoslavia is going uh, and how the narratives are there. We could learn a lot from how Germans have dealt with their difficult history.
That was the Belgrade electronic formation Shizike. I've played the song from 1984 with the kind permission of Discom, which reissued Shizike's album in 2016. Buy it at Discom's website and follow the label on social media. I've included the links at rememberingyugoslavia.com slash podcast. Don't Stop is an apt instruction for that constant search for who we are, the families, the places, the nations and religions that shaped us. The search for who we can be and want to be and for a life that's all about sorting through all of it, be it with research or writing or a podcast. The song itself carries echoes of Banadrama and Kraftwerk and Tom Tom Club and who knows what else. And in the end, like all of us, it's its own thing. Just like this podcast. Lots of influences, lots of sources of inspiration, lots of voices coming together in this little space to tell stories and share ideas about keeping the memory of one disappeared country alive. So don't stop listening, and don't stop if you feel inspired to support it with a contribution to keep the show going. The stories don't tell themselves, it takes all of us, all of you. So, in your podcast listening app, click the handy support the show link included in the episode description, or go to rememberingyugoslavia.com slash donate to make the magic happen. Now on with your show. Dennis Swob was a long-time Remembering Yugoslavia listener when he contacted me on Facebook. I found uh, some of the stories on your podcast very interesting and and kind of relevant to my feelings um, towards you know that country that I, I still hold very dear to to my heart. I've never been able to, I suppose, let go of the fact that that country no longer <laughs> exists. I'm not this sort of obsessed, um, Yugo nostalgic. I just have these really strong feelings uh, for not just that country because I was born there and I lived there for about 10, 15 years. I just love everything about it. You know, I'm a fan of, of socialism as well, and particularly the type of socialism that country was trying to build and, and um, the ideals it tried to embrace and deliver. But unfortunately, he wasn't really quite successful at that. You call yourself a Yugophile, and you've described that uh, just now. But you also call yourself a Yugoslav. What do you mean by that? I was born in Novi Sad, quote-unquote, capital of uh, Vojvodina. And um, that region itself, they used to call it mini-Yugoslavia because it's made up of many, many different nationalities. In 1976, when Swab was born, Vojvodina was an autonomous region within the Socialist Republic of Serbia. As back then, Vojvodina's population today comprises a large number of minorities in addition to the two-thirds of Serbs. Hungarians live mostly in the northern part of Vojvodina and constitute about 13% of its population. Slovaks, Croats and Roma comprise between 2 and 3% each, Montenegrins and Romanians between 1 and 2% each, and there are a lot of much smaller minorities, Albanians, Bunyevci, Czechs, Gorani, Germans, Jews, Macedonians, Russians, Rusins, or Ruthenians, Slovenes, Ukrainians, as well as the 0.63% of Vojvodina's population who claim to be Yugoslavs. My father is um, an ethnic Hungarian, but for the most part, he's what I would call a Yugoslav-Hungarian. And he never, ever taught me the language and he never really took the time or thought it was relevant because he always thought of himself as Yugoslavian. And my mom uh, is um, Serbian. I wasn't even aware of any other nationalities till I was about 12 years old. Um, I didn't even know that my, my dad was Hungarian and my mom was Serbian. I just thought we were Yugoslavian. 
my parents were both teachers, primary school teachers, who had actually been living in uh, Croatia at the time, in the um, uh, northern part of Croatia called Baranja, on the border with Hungary. So that's where I spent my childhood, basically, my first 12 years of my life. And this village was tiny, not even a thousand people. It had one pub, I had a primary school, and a church. This town was made up of primarily Croatian people and very Catholic. My parents were not religious. Now, both of my parents were in the Communist Party and um, they were teaching us the socialist um, ideals and the benefits of socialism and egalitarian society and, and, and equal opportunity and, and fairness and everything that comes with that. In the extended version of this episode, available to Patreon and other supporters, you can also hear the story of how Swab's family ended up in the north of Serbia and Croatia. A big part of that story is the joke his grandfather told that landed him at Goliotok. Visit rememberingyugoslavia.com donate to get access and a bitter laugh today. Another thing you mentioned is that you were a young Yugoslav poet hopeful. There's a story there. In the fourth grade in primary school, part of what we had to do was to learn and memorize some of these children's poems. They were mostly about the revolutionary fight, um, you know, about partisans. Um, they were about communist heroes and all that sort of stuff. I really liked those poems, and I thought, hmm, maybe I can, maybe I can have a go, you know, like let let, let me try and, and write something like this. In the fifth grade, we'd already have like biology, chemistry, physics, and all this sort of stuff. I was not interested in that at all. I would be sitting there and, and writing these poems. And my, um, I remember my biology teacher, she came once and she was like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm just um, writing a poem. Um, she got upset, but she looked at my poem and she was like, hang on, this, this actually looks pretty good, you know? And so she, she passed that on to the Croatian language um, teacher and she read the poem and she was like, hang on, you've got something here. Let me see if I can get you included in this um, young poets, socialist poets uh, of Croatia or whatever. And so I wrote a bunch of poems, like children's songs as well, that I would recite at different events. So, for example, um, 29th of November, which was a, probably the biggest holiday in the former country, the Republic Day or Dan Republica. You know, we'd get on stage and then sing songs, um, little stage plays, um, and also recite poetry. And, and I did that. Does any of that uh, work survive? Do you have uh, <laughs> any of that? Can you recite something for us? Unfortunately, none of it survived. We had to go and none of our stuff survived, unfortunately. And that was all, I suppose, disappeared in the flames of, um, of war. I do remember something about, um, but I don't remember the, the actual text at all, uh, but it was something about a ladybug losing its dots or something, something ridiculous. That speaks to uh, some themes that uh, you've been exploring since, uh, loss of something that's innate to you. Uh, that's interesting. As he turned into a teenager, Swab changed the tenor and themes of his poetry, and the naughty and obscene new material did not fly with the poet society powers that be. As the situation in Croatia escalated in the early 1990s, his parents sent him to stay with his grandparents in Novi Sad and attend school there. One night I, I caught a bit of news that talked about 
that particular town where I lived being attacked by um, Croatian paramilitaries and um, lots of people being killed and stuff like that. And I basically didn't, didn't know whether my parents were killed as well. So this is the point of my life where I was like, oh my God, I don't know if my parents are still alive. You know, I tried to call them. There was no phone connection. And a couple of days later, I got a phone call from my mum. Obviously, I was relieved that she was indeed still alive and my father as well. They told us what happened. Essentially, these guys attacked the village to basically get rid of any of the non-Croatian population in that town, even though there weren't that many non-Croatians living there. Um, my parents were hiding in the attic. By the time the, um, these paramilitaries got to our house, whatever was left of the Yugoslav army at the time uh, was um, on its way to the village and, and the, the paramilitaries had found out and they decided to retreat. My parents said that they heard voices, um, their house was going to be next, but it just so happened that they retreated at that time and so they survived, which is really, really pure luck. <laughs> Soon, the family was reunited in Novi Sad. A few years prior, some cousins of Swab's had moved to Australia and now invited his family to join them there. Swabs moved to Canberra in 1993 on refugee visas. Moving to a foreign country is never easy for anyone. And I'll be honest, it was difficult, but it was kind of exciting as well. Because I thought, oh, you know, like maybe this is, this is something that will be better. I was a little bit shocked as well, because um, Australia certainly is nothing what I thought it was going to be. <laughs> in Yugoslavia at the time, in the 80s especially, we were bombarded uh, with American movies. You know, the American culture was really 
something that we embraced. And coming to Australia, I was kind of expecting that that's what I would get. But Australia is quite a bit different to America. <laughs> now, obviously, what do you do when you get to a place that is completely foreign? You try and find people that are sort of like you, right? So obviously, my cousins were already living in Australia and they had friends. One of my cousins is, is sort of my age. So he was like, let me introduce you to the Serbian community. And uh, I was kind of excited about that, but then immediately disappointed. <laughs> The Serbian community in Australia was basically nothing like the Serbian people living in, in Serbia. Um, these guys were, first of all, um, could hardly speak the language. Now, I found that very amusing uh, because a lot of the Serbian people, especially at the time, were very nationalistic. They were almost more Serb than Serb. They felt that they were the real Serbian people and they were very, very almost obsessed with uh, the Serbian culture. But I thought, hang on a minute, you can't even speak Serbian. And very quickly, I, I realized that um, I wasn't going to be a part of this um, Serbian community in Australia. I couldn't really relate to them because most of these kids were actually kids from like the families of Serbian people who moved to Australia in the 50s, you know, maybe straight after the Second World War or 50s, maybe 60s. And a lot of them were still sort of stuck, almost frozen in time. And a lot of them were actually, they had to sort of leave Yugoslavia because they disagreed with the new socialist regime. They had sort of strong feelings <laughs> about the socialist Yugoslavia to these kids. Yugoslavia is just an artificial thing that these communist bastards created to keep Serbian people from becoming a, a great nation. They really hated everything associated with Yugoslavia, so I couldn't associate with these people because I thought, you have no idea what you're talking about. I lived in a country, I, I know what that country is all about. So I decided that I would not hang out with them. So it was difficult for me, because suddenly I found myself not belonging anywhere. Because I was new to Australia and to the Australian culture, I did not belong. And Australians, as nice as, as they are, they're not very welcoming of migrants. And so I didn't quite belong uh, with the Australian people, I uh, did not quite belong with the Serbian community. There was no longer any type of uh, Yugoslav community. I certainly did not feel anything towards the Hungarian community. And at the same time, watching the news and just watching the country dissolve, you know, and I just remember the first five years of my life in Australia were extremely difficult because of the lack of belonging to it to anything or anyone you know and and as a human being you, you just want to belong at the end of the day and and especially as a young person and i decided i would um try and just forget about um yugoslavia i would just try and forget about it all you know and just try and fit in to the australian society as much as i can i decided that the best way for me to do that is to learn the language as quickly as I can and as best as I can. And another way I, I thought I was going to do that was through football or soccer, as they call it here. And so I joined a, a soccer club, and this is where I started making friends. In the late 1990s, Swab watched Serbia under Milosevic make a mess of another nation in Kosovo. And that's when I was forced to take 
interest again in the affairs of um, that country. Things were different, I discovered. Uh, late 90s was when um, the Serbian people, especially young Serbian people, started to get wise to that ultra-nationalism and all of those terrible things that had been happening in Serbia and Yugoslavia and they started to resist. Young people really got organized and they said, enough is enough. We cannot tolerate this anymore. We've been fed lies all these years by Milosevic and the regime there. And I kind of saw a little bit of something that I could sort of relate to again. Then the internet happened. At the time, what was happening was the uh, internet relay chat or the IRC, the first type of um, internet sort of communication, um, little sort of like chat rooms and stuff like that. And so what I did was um, I went online and, and searched for any Serbian chat rooms and I found one channel which was called Serbia. So I joined that and um, there were all these young people talking about uh, the war and you know in Kosovo and everything else. But then I started to see Croatian people, like Bosnians, they would sort of join in the conversation as well. And it was mostly like in support of the young people of Serbia. I was really pleasantly surprised by that. After everything that happened um, in the early 90s and mid 90s, we come to the late 90s and suddenly this is happening now. And then people from Belgrade and People from Zagreb and Sarajevo and, and different parts of former Yugoslavia would all go and, and meet up and, and have these great meetings and go out and party together. It was something that I could finally relate to. So I spent a number of years almost living my life on the internet, being in touch with these people, you know, talking to them and, and meeting them. Some of them actually even came to visit me in Australia and stuff like that. And I went over there as well one year. I thought a piece of Yugoslavia had returned, you know. <laughs> Red sky Good morning, but we don't care for the ends night Let me light up your soul And inhale So I can get high One
Swab works as a software test manager. He collects records of Yugoslav-era rock bands and Alan Ford comic books. He also makes music, which you've heard throughout today's show, with the band he named Mechanism of Action. Check them out on Spotify and buy their music. The links are at rememberingyugoslavia.com slash podcast. The track Gentrify is the closest Swab's gotten to a song dedicated to his disappeared country. Are you an ex-Yugoslav diasporan with a story to tell? Get in touch via the website, rememberingyugoslavia.com slash contact, and let's take it from there. Watching the world go, watching it all go down, vanish in the haze. Play the one that silences the Yugoslavia. Sarajevo and Bosnia are almost absolutely free of anti-Semitism, which is a little bit strange, but these three ethnic groups are so busy hating each other, they don't have time to hate the Jews. Since the 16th century, the Jewish community in Sarajevo has been small but strong. What was life like for Jews in socialist Yugoslavia in over the past three decades? And what's the Haggadah got to do with it? Tune in wherever you listen to podcasts, follow to make sure you don't miss out, and subscribe to support us. That's all for this episode of Remembering Yugoslavia. Thank you for listening. Find additional information, embeds, links to purchase all the music you've heard, and a transcript of this episode at rememberingyugoslavia.com slash podcast. While you're there, and before you go, take a moment to back the show. Navigate to rememberingyugoslavia.com slash donate and join the growing community of podcast supporters. And enjoy the extended version of this and other episodes while you're at it. Outro music courtesy of Robert Petrich, additional music courtesy of Shizike and Discom, Dennis Swob and Mechanism of Action, and PMG Collective. Buy their music. All the links are at rememberingyugoslavia.com slash podcast. The track Rainmaker by Petar Alargic, licensed under Creative Commons. I am Petar Kochniak. Ciao and adio. Stop, stop.